Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to True Fiction. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. We're the show that delves deep into the minds of creative people and finds out where that creative spark comes from. Across the plains of space and time, my co-pilot for this journey, Norbert Yates, is with us. How are you doing tonight, Norbert? I, I, I'm bringing it. I'm bringing a lot of energy. I'm coming in hot. That you know what? That's the <clears throat> mantra for tonight. We're bringing in the we're bringing the energy. You know, so tonight our guest is a writer and artist who has written more than 25 books, including the bestsellers "The Comic Toolbox" and "Decide to Play Great Poker." along with writing for sitcoms Married with Children and Charles in Charge. True Fiction welcomes John Forehouse. Hey, John, how's it going? Woo! Woo. Hey! I'm sorry, I I wanted to come in hot, too. Woo! And I came in too hot and stepped on you. Hey, Patrick, really good to see you. Norbert, what's happening? Hey! Vibrating! Let's all pretend we had too much coffee. Coffee, coffee, coffee. Let's lend special effects to our sound. Down, 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 down. Mm. And this is, you know, they're this is more than they ever paid for. They're getting a lot of it. You know, they're getting a lot for the money on these these podcasts now. So that's on awesome. these free podcasts, yeah, on these free podcasts. Oh, you're yeah. getting your money's worth today, folks. Hundred <laughs> percent. You must be one hundred percent satisfied, or your money cheerfully retained. <laughs> retained, yes, exactly. Retained, yeah. That's the way I sell my books. <laughs> You've written quite a few. Uh, I love that you have. A, a varied bunch of books. You have a lot of, you have quite a few on poker, but you have mystery books you've written. You've got basically not self help. Like, is it self help? Would you call like, you could call it that. The comic toolbox. Pop philosophy, self help. Yeah. I mean, certainly how to in the realm of writing and creativity. Um, yes. If I, if, if I understand what you're saying, and I think I do, uh, you're noting a range and you're noting a variety in my work, and you're asking yourself what threads all of these things together. And I can tell you that it's two things. One is, intrinsic to me, something about who I am. And the other is strategic. So it's intrinsic and strategic. And I'm excited about that because I've never said that before. And I think (laughs) it's super cool. Um, The intrinsic part is this. I'm attracted to new things. I'm like a magpie for the new things. Magpies are attracted to shiny objects. And so something comes along that, that I'm interested in and I know very little or nothing about it. I'm drawn to it. Always have been. So there was going to be variety in my business plan anyhow. But early in my writing career, uh, just when I first moved to Hollywood, um, it, it became clear to me that if I had versatility on my side, I could really do a lot more with my writing mojo. That if all I knew how to do was write sitcoms, all I could sell was sitcoms. If I learned how to write hour dramas, I could do hour dramas. Along the way, if I knew how to do something else like play poker just because I'm a fan of the game, I could take that on and turn that into words as well. So the attraction to new things plus the strategic decision to go off in all directions at once made me the man I am today. (laughs) And the crowd goes wild. Um, So, yes. So you, you've done uh, all these different things or you're, you're interested in different things. Do you think of yourself as a master of Ooh, that's a great any question. of them? That, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Thank you for asking a question that challenges me to shed a light on myself because that's why I want to be here to really try and figure out how I go about this. This is the truth. 
in the history of my life, there are many, many things that I have passed through without conquering. And I'm aware of this. I'm aware that I haven't achieved the pinnacle of breakthrough, knockout success that one would acknowledge. I was a singer-songwriter, couldn't sing and play guitar very well. I was an advertising copywriter, never won awards. I was a working sitcom writer, never got to the point where I was writing pilots or making my own show. So I have been aware that it's been a thread of my life that I passed through things without mastering them. But there are a couple of things that I've done that I can claim mastery over in kind of an objective sense. I know my way around comedy. I, I will hold myself up as a master equal to anyone on a kind of a theoretical and practical level about why things are funny and how to make you use things in a funny way. I got mastery there. I have mastery over uh, the idea of practice. I know what it means to have a practice. I know what it means to live within one's practice and advance it according to one's awareness and consciousness. Now, in that area of mastery, there's no such thing as absolute mastery, because really what you're talking about is self-knowledge and whoever gets to the bottom of that. But my pursuit of self-knowledge is something that I, I don't feel like I've passed through it and never conquered it. I feel like I have aggressively engaged with it and continue to make progress with it all the time. So I have mastery in that area. I dare to claim mastery with maybe with a small M instead of a capital M in the area of art, not because my art is masterful, but because it was only five years ago that I decided to get into art in the first place. And it was only five years ago that I set myself the goal of achieving sufficiently well that I could look at myself and call myself an artist. And I am there now. So the stuff that I can't own, I don't own. The stuff that I can own, I do own. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. As you start out, you said some things that I think are, are really interesting. And one one thing that uh, a thread I, I'd like to pull on is you're interested in a wide variety of things. So the idea is pulling on the string of what you said before, do you feel that, that the stuff that you're interested in and you move in from one place to another, that they build upon each other? That one thing, either it moves you to a different space that makes it when you come back to either it's writing comedy or you go to art or, or does these experiences build upon the, themselves in any way? They do, but not without some difficulty. One issue that I consider is, am I spreading myself too thin? Am I going off in so many different directions creatively that I'm never really allowing myself to push forward in any one of those directions? That's a real consideration. And, and one thing one might look at there is, does he have a fear of finishing and therefore holding his objects up to the examination of the people? A, lo a lot of people get distracted from one project and into another project because they don't really want to finish the first project. They don't want to throw it out into the public and face the public's response to it. And so this is a form of procrastination, we might say, to divert one's attention in this way. I'm aware of that danger. I don't think it, it um, applies to me because I look for synergy between the parts of my creative practice. I, I know things about myself as a, as, a, as a writer that I didn't know before I started doing art. And I encounter problems in my art that I can problem solve effectively by what I know from writing. And I can give you examples of each if you like. As a writer... I never, uh, I always viewed the relationship uh, between myself and the audience in this sense, that when I write a book, I am building a bridge to a reader. The bridge is a bridge of information. I'm taking information that exists inside my head, encoding that information into words, 
and sending the words across the bridge. Then the reader receives the words, decodes them back into thought, and acquires the meaning that's in the book. And this is everything from a poem to a novel to a how-to book, instruction manual, anything you can think of. The relationship in the written word exists between the writer and the reader. And the thing that is created, the book itself, is the means of facilitating that relationship. What I discovered when I went into art was my relationship to the work was completely different. I wasn't thinking about the audience at all. For the first time in my life, in my creative life, I was only looking at the relationship that exists between myself and the work, between myself and the art. And that that gave me a sense of, okay, the audience is going to come later. People are going to look at it. They're going to like it. They're going to not like it. But why I'm here is to have this fulfilling artistic experience. And boy, it's different from the experience of writing. So now when I go back to my writing, I can think about my relationship in more complex terms, in more nuanced terms. Is this part of the writing between the writer and the word? Or is it between the writer and the reader across the word or some combination of those? How does all of that balance out? So that's art looking at writing. Now, here's writing looking at art. One thing I know as a writer is a written work has to have a theme. It has to have a sense of message that it's trying to communicate. Otherwise, it's an empty shell. Doesn't There's no point in, in, in having created it in any sense. The same question can be asked of visual art, and it will help me to create the picture that I want to create if I can say to myself in words out loud, what is the theme of this picture? I would give an example, but we're not only video, we're audio and video, right? So if I were to say to the radio audience, look at this beautiful picture on the wall behind me, and you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. That might fall on blind eyes, one (laughs) might say, as opposed to falling on deaf ears. Anyway, I think that's the, the idea is sound. I have a better sense of what a picture might say because of what I know about saying things as a writer. Okay, thank you for asking that question. Okay, now I'm going to piggyback on that question. Now, is the insight that you got from doing art, mm-hmm. now, the only thing I was, you're writing for somebody that would be like you where you'd go, I like this, this is this is resonating to me. And so any number of people have had similar experiences as you or life, you know, because we're human and there's a certain number of people that are going to resonate. So then does that free you to think, okay, I can write more, for myself in a way or somebody like me uh, wow that's a big challenging subject uh first of all i think i have to walk back something i said a minute ago that i have as an artist i have a real relationship with my with my v- people who look at my art in the sense that there are things that i want them to find in my work and the satisfaction I get, the relationship between myself and my art is when I accomplish the things I set out to accomplish. Mostly what I want in my work is to demonstrate whimsy or confusion. I like to put images out there that make people laugh. And I like to put images out there that make people wonder what they're looking at. And if I achieve those goals, then I feel like I've pushed the buttons I've been pushing. I've been trying to push. But to the question of how I as a writer find my audience I find grief in that space, if I'm being completely honest, because I've written some novels that really speak to people like me, and I feel unsatisfied in the reach those novels have had. And I've asked myself the question that you're asking, am I not speaking clearly? Am I not identifying the people I'm trying to reach? Why am I not getting read? There's a wonderful way of looking at storytelling that asks two questions. 
who is my tribe and what is their anxiety? And I'll, I'll tell you mean what I mean by this. I'm a, an older person. I'm 65 years old. So my tribe, one of my tribes is baby boomers. What's, what is my anxiety? Aging and dying. So uh, if I want to speak to people who are like me, I can find a fertile path to doing so just by asking who is like me, what are their concerns, and how can I speak to their concerns in my work? There's an example that I can pull from my stand-up comedy, if I may. I'll just sure. do a little bit. It's a, I'm, coming out of, uh, I'm, I'm coming out of something where I'm talking about how I have a standing DNR order, do not resuscitate, right? And I say that's not just for operations or accidents. That's for all day, every day, just walking around town. I go down. I stay down. That's my motto now. Does that sound morbid? This is this is the part here. Does that sound morbid? I don't think that's morbid at all. Because I'm not afraid to die. I think that when I die, I will rise to a higher plane of being, not unlike an off-Broadway show, finally getting a Broadway run. And and when I put stuff like that into my material, for the sake of speaking to the consequence of death, specifically speaking to the consequence of death, then I'm walking across that bridge between myself and my tribe, and the bridge that I'm crossing is our commonly held anxiety did that come within light years of answering your question oh yeah it does because then you're trying to i think about this as somebody who does art myself you want and a pat and i've had this conversation before where we were talking about is art if nobody else sees it if you're just doing it by yourself and and there's a part of me that if i don't enjoy it i know nobody else is likely to enjoy it but I want my stuff to be seen by people. I want people to enjoy it. There's a performative aspect of an artist that even though I'm sitting at a drawing table or or whatever, I, I'm still um, I still want to perform for people in a way. And so I do want to be seen. I do want to be. I want my work to be seen. Now, I think it's it can be scary at times because what if people don't accept your work? What if they don't? What if they reject it? But I I just that's a, this uh, uh, Pat and I've had some conversations uh, about artists and what is art. And I thought maybe you would like to elaborate on that or talk about that. I can tell you that a writer is a subversive who uses entertainment to instruct. Shall I say that again? I always repeat it in class. Please. A writer is a subversive who uses entertainment to instruct. What is an artist? What is art? I, I, I have handy answers. I have them all written down somewhere, but I don't think any, I have anything that would serve this discussion. I'm interested in two things. One is you clearly have a grasp of your own sense of process. You know what you want out of your work. You acknowledge that your art has a performative aspect. Not everyone's does. You acknowledge that you want to have an active relationship with your audience. The only thing that would be a tragedy would be if you are not acting on your desire to bridge to your audience because your fear of rejection was so great that it didn't let you put it out there. But it doesn't sound like that's the case. So you're off the hook for that. But for people who are listening and who are, who are wondering, well, what does it mean to know myself as an artist so I can effectively operate as an artist? Look right there and ask yourself, is there a gap between what you want to achieve with your art and what you have given yourself permission to try to achieve with your art? And if that gap exists, go to work, seek on uh, closing it. But you said something else that I really liked and respond to. If I don't like it, they're not going to like it. I throw images together 
And I sometimes look at them and I say, well, that's just hogwash. I don't know what I was thinking. It doesn't speak to me. And I throw other images together and I and I, I say, I'm really excited about that. Now my job is done. I created something that excited me. If other people are similarly excited by it, that's great, but that's gravy. And, and I think, again, I think this is... Norbert, maybe just where we're at in our respective processes, because I got a lot less stress on me to make art that sells and even art that finds an audience than I did uh, when I was a young man and and really had to make my creativity pay for itself. It gives me a, a fair bank of self-indulgence. And I recognize that it's a luxury. And that's kind of why we're having this conversation, because I, I find myself asking over and over again, what can I do with all this luxury? And one thing I can do, another area that I have mastery over, God, I didn't even mention this. I am the fucking greatest teacher in the world <laughs> with all due false modesty. <laughs> There's one thing I can do is teach the crap out of everything. So if I'm I'm a winner in the game of creativity in the sense that I've had a, a career where I'm following my passion and getting paid, and that's certainly true, I am that kind of winner, then I, according to my own value set, I have a very strong need to broadcast information about how to be this kind of winner. Another completely rambling answer. (laughs) I'm sorry if you're going to find this to be edit proof, but that's my take. Hey, there was a lot of gold in that, okay? I I had a lot of good stuff in that. got me thinking about you know the difference between and uh, I don't even I write and I do and I do art. I wouldn't I do more commercial, but I I would love to try to do more fine art. But I was just thinking about the way that you end projects. So usually when you're writing, there's an actual end to it. I mean, when when you're reading it, it's an actual end. And then, but art. Somebody smarter than me once said, "Art is never finished, but abandoned." And and so oh. how how do you finish? How do you know you're finished with your art? Uh, boy, I asked myself that question a lot when I was just starting out uh, and, and sought to solve it like a writer solves it. When I started doing art, I started writing a book called A White Belt in Art. Right. Uh, the, idea, the idea was I'm going to go for a white belt because that's the one they give you for just showing up, which means my expectations are nice and low. And I want to be an artist. I'm going to write a book about it. That's a writer type thing to do. But then I created my manifesto. Let me see if I can remember this exactly. I will decide which works to create. I will create works I believe in and I will stand behind the works I create. This is a very solipsistic way of saying, I'll decide when my work is done because I decide when my work is done. It kind of of a tautological bootstrap exercise, if one may say, if those words mean anything. (laughs) I was trying to get out ahead of the question that you're asking. Since I don't know the first thing about art, I have no aesthetic, I have no judgment, I have no eye, I have no hand, I have no voice, I've got nothing. How will I know when I'm done? Well, I'll know when I'm done when I tell myself I'm done. And at first I won't trust that because I don't know what it means and I don't have enough experience. But eventually I'll start to trust it more because I'll have more repetitions. I'll have more experiences of that art's not done. It's just broken and it can't be fixed by me. Set it aside. All right. This one only took five minutes and it's done. I don't have anything to add to it. All right. Hold on to that. This one I worked five days on and it never bore fruit. It's not done. It's broken. Set it aside. This one took me a week and a half. And wow, look at it now. I can't think of another thing to add to it. Must be done. It's it's not looking at a, at a state in a piece of art and saying this is the end state. 
this is where I was meant to arrive. It's rather recognizing that the end state has arrived, not because you were aiming for it necessarily, but just because you were walking down a road that it was going to be on eventually. If you don't trust if you, if you think you don't know where the end state is, if you think you can't recognize this picture is done, it's not that you lack the critical eye that will tell you that it's done. It's only that you lack the faith in the eye that tells you that it's done. And the more you work, the greater your faith becomes based on experience and the more you come to trust your eye. I can wrap this whole thing up in a tiny bow by saying for writers and artists alike, if you want to get good at knowing when the work is good, acquire lots and lots of practice of telling you that the work isn't good enough yet. Whether you're writing a novel or painting a picture, if you beat your head against it and demand of yourself that you wrestle it to the ground and stomp on it until its lifeless corpse can fight you no more, then when that moment arrives and you stand over the bleeding, broken corpse of that thing and you say, I have vanquished you, sir or madam, you'll know for a fact that it's true. Nice. Since you're an instructor, you've been very good at creativity. I'm going to ask, I, I sort of think of, there's a lot of um, cross utility in how you think about creativity in art. I think that, you know, we talked to somebody that was a baker last uh, time. And I, and there's some of the things that she thought about in making a recipe. That's a, the, the processes are similar to what you do in art. I mean, so there's a lot of craft. So one of the things I think about, I've thought about relatively recently, is, is how to take my art and move it up. And, and, and one of the things that I was thinking about is taking chances. Now, as you start out, it's hard to do that unless you just have, your, you know, you don't think about it very much. You, you get your foot in the door in a, in a creative a realm and you're starting to pay for, you know, it's paying for itself and you're excited about that. But in, for you to progress as an artist and for your art or your writing or your, I think there has to be a certain risk taking in, in making bolder choices and looking for bolder choices, at least for myself. And I was wondering what you thought of that idea. In my vocabulary, it's called a have more, need more condition. When we have achieved something creatively, the creative spark that burns within us says, okay, I did that, now I need more. Uh, for me, it was, I wrote a, an ad. I could, okay, I could do that. What's next? I wrote a song. Okay, that was bigger. That was more. What's more than that? Sitcom. What's more than that? Our drama. What's more than that? Screenplay. So there is a natural evolution. It's the same thing with art. If you're talking about creating it, you know, this is a sketch or this is something that I only spent an hour on, but now I'm doing more. I'm setting up bigger projects that take longer because I have more confidence and I want to challenge myself more. So we're naturally on an evolutionary path as artists. We're, we're attempting bigger, more challenging things. That's the nature of the creative experience. The problem is that every time we step up, as you say, it's risk. And with risk comes associated fear, the sense that 
if I make the effort to do this next bigger thing, this is where I'm going to find out that I can't actually get up to that level. This is where I fail. This is where the whole thing collapses. So we simultaneously have the urge to drive forward creatively, do bigger stuff, have more impact. And we also carry forward a fear because every time we're trying to do bigger stuff, have more impact, we're taking more risk, we're risking more failure. What I do with all of this is accept it with as much acceptance as I can, by which I mean, I know that every time I want to take on something bigger, part of me is going to really want to, and part of me is going to really not want to. And I'm going to have to negotiate my way through that that fight, that struggle. I'll give you an example, perfect example from my recent life. It's uh, stand-up comedy. I started doing it in the pandemic because I could do it from the privacy of my own home, naked from the waist down. This is great for me. But now that the clubs are open again, I got to ask myself, do I really want to step up and step out and go into the clubs and level up, you know, do six or seven open, open mics a week? get up to headline or get up to featured act, get up to showcase, get up to headliner, go and walk down the path. Spoiler alert, no, it's never going to happen because success in that field is a community game. I, to succeed as a stand-up, I really need to come up through the ranks with other people like me. And on my late date, that's not going to happen. But also as I navigate that space, I say to myself, cop to it, John, admit you're afraid. Admit that that the thought of expressing yourself creatively in those circumstances carries a substantial amount of risk that you're not 100% willing to address. Maybe not now, maybe not ever. If I'm afraid, it's a failure. If I make a mistake, it's a failure. If I fail, it's a failure. I can live with all of that. The only thing I can't live with is not copying to my failures because my job here is to have as much self-awareness as I can muster for as long as I live at as high a level as possible. And anytime I refuse to confront myself, honestly, I'm denying my own self-awareness. My feeling is that those are the ultimate stakes I'm playing for. So that's how I drive myself forward appropriately, but also drive myself forward with good consciousness. I wanted to kind of follow up that a little bit. I think you're in a you're in a position that is is in, in ways envious for people that have to work for the man. So that you know what a lot of what I like I said earlier, I I've done a lot of commercial stuff, commercial artwork, and uh, even some of the design work that I do now for my my uh, day job. It's not what is it's not what makes my heart sing, you know what I'm saying? But yes, it's, it pays the bills, but so you're in kind of an envious spot. I would love to be where you're at as as where you're working with us. Now, here's here's something else that I was looking through interesting uh tidbits about John Vorhaus and ran the writing staff of the Russian version of Married with Children. So my question is, well first, that's cool as hell. I think that's awesome. Do you speak Russian? Yet. <laughs> well, really what my question was is what was the biggest differences what that you had to do between the American and the Russian version? That's that, that's a lot to unpack as the kids <laughs> say. Let me let me set the stage for you and and I'm going to try to wind this up with a wonderful little story about not married with children but bewitched in Russia that will shed light on all oh, of this. Wow. But, oh wow, I know. Okay, so uh, this is 2007-2008. I have acquired a reputation as an international creative consultant. I'm good at going into places and running writing staffs and creating television shows, doing this kind of thing. I've also sort of made a reputation for being willing and eager to be boots on the ground in new places. You know me, always like the new thing. So I got an offer from Sony Pictures International to go to Moscow and run the writing staff of the Russian version of Married with Children for two winters. I was never there in nice weather. I was only there for two really 
really brutal winters and I hate winter, but I go where the work is because you never leave money lying on the table. The differences between Russians and Americans are profound and much more profound than I knew at the time. First, I'll tell you what they have in common. In Russia, everywhere else I've been in the world, when I say married with children, the first thing people say is, Al Bundy, he's just like us. We love him. And so a show like that succeeding in Russia makes a lot of sense. That character makes total sense to them. But Everywhere I'd been up till then, I'd sort of been all about getting people to fall in love with me. Follow me, guys. I'm going to inspire you and lead you to greatness. And the Russians weren't really all that keen to fall in love with me. They don't fall in love with anybody easily, and they don't fall in love with Americans at all. So it was a challenging environment for me, both on Married with Children and on Bewitched, because at a certain point, I was also overseeing the the recreation of the American version of Bewitched for the Russian market, which brings me, by roundabout means, to the story of the episode of Bewitched that was deemed too pornographic to be shown on Russian television. Wow. Oh, I have your attention now, don't I? (laughs) You remember Bewitched. It's the cute witch who wrinkles her nose and makes the magic happen, and her dumbass husband who works in an ad agency. The Russian version, it was basically the same story. And the way Sony operates, they take their original scripts, they do a fast translation through a translator, hand the scripts to the uh, to the writers, and then they tell the writers, take this script and reverse engineer a story outline for our characters in our world. Simple, straightforward format adaptation. This is the way it's done, and it usually works. But at a certain point, oh, sorry, and I should mention, and one thing you must never do is waste episodes, because basically Sony is selling its catalog to itself in another country, and they want to make sure that the full catalog is exploited. So if a, if a story is challenging because the American idiom is very strong, okay, it's challenging, but you're going to have to meet the challenge because we're not throwing away any episodes. Example, uh, there are stories with Al Bundy where he remem- reminisces about being a football player back in the day. Easy enough to switch that to soccer. No problem. But you're going to have to switch it because we're not throwing out the episode (laughs) just because your audience doesn't understand American football. Everybody with me so far? (laughs) Okay. Now, this brings us to the episode of Bewitched that I'm talking about where members of my writing staff came to me and they said, we will not uh, adapt this episode of Bewitched. And I said, why not? And they said, it's obscene. And I said, it's bewitched. It's not obscene. (laughs) They said, nevertheless, uh, we won't do it unless you get special permission from the network. Otherwise, we're just throwing it out. And now I was in a state of bafflement because I told you I'd had some challenges with these writers. And I didn't know if it was that there was a legitimate concern with the script or they just didn't want to be bothered to do the hard work of the adaptation. Or maybe they were messing with me in some sense. Got to get to the bottom of this. I turned the script over to my interpreter, lovely young woman recent college language school graduate. I called her Sunshine. She was wonderful. And she had a really difficult job because she was my interpreter. I don't speak Russian. I know a few words, but most of what I said and heard, all of what I said and heard went through her. And because of this tumultuous relationship I had with my writers, some of what she interpreted was not, you know, all candles and cake, not all sweetness and light. And I hated that because that's not how I operate. Anyway, I said to her, please read this script. Tell me why they think it's obscene. She read it and she reported back to me. The episode in question involves the following storyline. The next door neighbor moves in and she's a sexy young woman and Darren, the husband, is hot for her and Samantha, the witch, is jealous. Does that sound like an episode of Bewitched that you might remember? Sure. Yeah, pretty tame, right? Yeah. 
In the American version of the script, the hot, sexy neighbor's name was Pleasure O'Reilly. Pleasure O'Reilly, nice, simple, fun name, still not too dirty, right? In the original Russian version that had been translated from the American script, the original translator had translated the character name in every instance as oral pleasure. Oh, my. So the script was literally shot through with blowjob jokes. (laughs) (laughs) I explained to the writers, I said, look, you guys, I grew up in America in the 1960s, and I'm here to tell you, America did not know about blowjobs in the 1960s. We didn't find out about them until Linda Lovelace came along in 1973 and showed us the true path. So let's just go ahead and change the character name and move on with our lives, shall we? And little did I know, little did I know in that moment of conflict with my writers, and it was fraught. I was was not a happy camper at the moment, just where I was in my head at the time. But little did I know that I would be gaining a story that I would dine out on solidly for the rest of my life. (laughs) That is (laughs) a good one. So to those writers who I described in my mind as passive-aggressive and aggressive-passive, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm thinking you don't keep, keep in contact with them. <laughs> no, actually, actually, I'm, I'm bad-mouthing the relationship more, more than it really deserves to be. And I think part of this is over time I've colored the story to, to emphasize the conflict. Probably nobody besides me was even aware there was conflict going on at the time. I mean, they were trying to not do a certain part of the job a certain way. But basically, they were just trying to solve a problem. But where I was in my head, overthinking everything, like I do all the time, I made more of it than it was, I'm sure. But that that story is is instructive, man. If you're going to work in comedy across cultures, you need to start by asking yourself, what does this culture find funny? How can I adapt my understanding to it? And how can I help them mine their own culture for funny without applying or putting my own value judgments on top of it? Exactly. You know, that's uh, the other thing I was going to ask you about was the uh, where it says you train New Zealand's first generation of a situation comedy writers. That is that's amazing. First, that. One thing that they didn't have it at the time, and then then you train them, and it's uh, to me it's like um, so I'm I'm wondering at what to what extent because I know that it's a different culture over there. I mean, every place that's not America is a different culture. Heck, California and Indiana have different cultures. So I know when you go to uh, New Zealand and you're training these people on how to write situation comedies, how did that go? Oh, it went great. It was one of the peak experiences of my life. Um, uh, I, I went back and forth over a period of about six months or so. I started out with a large group of writers, over 100, and over time cut them down and winnowed them and chose a writing staff, developed a bunch of ideas, picked one to uh, uh, picked a few to present to the network, sold one, made a bunch of episodes, you know, just like you're supposed to. It, it wasn't challenging. Language wasn't a problem. We had English in common. I never went there trying to say, this is how you make an American sitcom. Rather, these are the tools of sitcom as I understand them. Let's figure out how to apply them to the place we're in and make the thing happen. It's not surprising they didn't have sitcoms at the time, uh, because this is my uh, impression of channel surfing in New Zealand in 1993. Channel 1, Channel 2, Channel 1. Wow. Channel two. That's all, that's all there is to it. So there wasn't a lot of television programming and this was the first. I mean, this is this is a, a lot of my early career was built on exactly this model going into places where they haven't yet had sitcoms and they're trying to make their first one or their first one or two. I was 
the right guy for the right job for a long time, it seemed like I was showing up in countries about the same time Starbucks was. <laughs> and that's how you could chart my progress around the world. As soon as they had Starbucks, they're probably about ready for me. Now, I have to tell you, like I said, that was a peak experience for me. I had a great time. My writers had a great time. Then I went on to do other things. They went ahead and produced the show. They ran into predictable problems with networks production companies not quite knowing what they were doing. The whole thing became a BFHM, which is short for Big Fat Hairy Mess. <laughs> so much so, this is the this is the point of the story, so much so that that sitcom has been declared the worst sitcom ever made. Not only declared, that's the title of a podcast called The Worst Sitcom Ever Made, a six-part story of that very sitcom. It's not. Wow. But the guy who made the sitcom worked on it and People have reviled him for so many years that he decided he needed to fight back. I will tell you personally, I've worked on a half a dozen sitcoms much worse than that. I mean, some I've made much worse than that. But to your question about culture, it's part of New Zealand culture to kind of root for failure or, or condemn its, its own efforts, a self-consciousness, you might say. It's called cultural cringe. And I think that the show really suffered from that, that people weren't going to let it be a winner because they're state of mind required it be not that otherwise they wouldn't be hip in some oh, sense yeah. wow but but again i'm looking at it through the distant filter of memory so who knows definitely great podcast that uh, um, worst sitcom ever made if you're a fan of situation comedy and obscure obscurely made sitcoms with a little dose of me in there uh that's a good one to check out oh, that's all that sounds great i'd love to check it out i'll Listen to at least one a I, night. I find, it, I find it interesting that that a culture would have a sort of a, a almost a, a defeatism about it. That's, I mean, you know, rooting for your rooting for failure on some level. That's, I mean, I know there's aspects of people and groups of people that get into that mindset, but if it permeates a culture, man, that's. Yeah, I, I, I hear you, I'm, and I'm not sure you're wrong. I, I, I can reflect on this. There's a, there is a thing in British culture called the tall poppy syndrome. Do you know what that is? If you aspire to be a tall poppy, we will cut you down. That's what it means. See, there, it's, a, it's a cultural norm in parts of British culture or historically in British culture. Don't try to aspire to something great. Otherwise, the people around you will conspire to defeat you. This is also found in Scandinavian culture. There it's called Löwen, the laws of the town of Yanta. It's a, a fictionalized um, uh, idealization or, or uh, summar summarization of the idea that you shouldn't uh, try to claim status. You shouldn't try to be better than you are. You should not aspire. So I think there is an element of don't try to aspire in cultures other than American culture. American culture is quite the opposite. And one of the things I had to learn when I started dealing with writers in other countries was that American people are very used to the idea of if I want something, I go for it. And I'm not apologizing for it. And I am taking ownership for it or ownership of it. And one of the blocks that I had in dealing with writers all over the world, not just New Zealand, not just Russia, but everywhere, is this idea of naturally taking ownership. Because I think that the American viewpoint, if I want it, uh, I have a right to go for it and try to get it. I feel that that is something that is not shared by most natural psyches around the world. What could be wrong? Oh, that's so maybe that's, maybe that's, oh, that's, that's where your bafflement comes from. 
Yeah, you know, I've I've seen that yeah, on right. <clears throat> I've seen that on a smaller scale here in the United States, where you know uh, sometimes in some in some circles you're looked down upon by trying to better yourself, having an education. Prideful ignorance is what I used to call it. Huh. Okay. Well, I cop to prideful ignorance. I have my share of that. <laughs> did Did that satisfy you, Norbert? We We sort oh, of yes, made this. Yes. I I just from my standpoint, I I always think that for advancement, you have to have people with the idea that you can do things. I think about things that we have accomplished through our nation's short history, such as putting a man on the moon, any number of things, uh, or any artistic endeavors. You have to have people that believe that they can achieve something that most people are not achieving. I'm kind of, uh, how can I say it? I'm dumbstruck by that concept that people as, as cultures at large would have that. And it's sort of, I mean, now that you say it though, as I think reflect on certain things in history, I can go, Oh, that makes a little more sense now, but it just, you know, like I said, it, when you first said it, it just kind of blew me, blew me away. Well, let me see if I can blow you back in the other direction a little bit and tell you the story about the creative ferment of Berlin and why this idea of, holding back or second guessing or doubting does not exist in the artistic community in Berlin, or at least it didn't when I was engaged with it. This was the late 90s, yeah, mid 90s to late 90s. And at that time, communism had ended and East Berlin was open again, but it hadn't really changed that much from the before times. And I don't know if you know, but Berlin has always been a bit of a freak show. It's always attracted a lot of creative energy and not just creative energy, but one might say fringe creative energy, thinking about the cabaret environment of the 19 of the Weimar Republic of the 1920s, whatnot. So artistically avant-garde, let's say, lots going on. Uh, well, why? Well, partly because of its traditions, of its, maybe it's water, I don't know. But then after World War II, Germany became partitioned. There was West Germany and then East Germany and the middle of East Germany, this little pocket of West Germany called West Berlin. Stay with me. This is going somewhere. So you, if you're My a citizen came from there. So if you're, oh, is that right? So mm -hmm. if you're, if you're in West Germany, you have the rights and obligations of a German citizen. If you're in West Berlin, you have a slightly different set of rights and obligations. Here's why that's important. From the end of the war through the fall of communism, if you were, and probably still today, I don't know, but uh, for most of German history, post-war history, if you were a young man, you had to serve in the armed forces. But if you were a young man and you lived in Berlin, you didn't have to serve. You got exempt. So what did you do if you wanted to serve in the armed forces? You served. What did you do if you didn't want to serve in the armed forces? You went to Berlin. Why did you not want to serve in the armed forces? Because you're an artist? Because you're a freak? Because you um, have a different uh, gender orientation or sexual orientation? Because you don't fit in and you know the army is no place for you. Over time, this brings an influx of freaks into Berlin, along with their families, boyfriends, girlfriends. And uh, the next thing you know, Berlin is a wide open artistic city. The law of unintended consequences strikes again. That's interesting. <laughs> so where I'm blessed in all of this is that by luck, uh, I've gotten to travel all around the world experiencing these different things and kind of cross-pollinating ideas. 
The best thing about me as a student of comedy is I'm no longer limited by the American understanding of what it means to be funny. I've got dozens of different looks at that. So if I go into a situation, I can say, oh, this situation in Lithuania is very much like what I encountered in Switzerland, where they're moving out of self-consciousness and into ownership. So let's focus on helping them in that way. And that's just me recycling my gifts again. I was just going to say that is a... um I think that's a fantastic thing to be able to experience the wider world and see the differences in culture. I think that's a, a tremendous opportunity because then you can appreciate the, the good that, that comes from our culture and you probably see the bad too, but it's, it's a, uh, I think it's tremendous to be able to see those different, you know, it's like, I've not done a ton of traveling outside the States, but I've went to Germany and it's fascinating to me to see cultures that are different. And, and even Germany that has that, that sort of uh, avant-garde sort of thing, there's also a sense of age that you don't get around mm-hmm. here. Because you don't get around here, for sure. Oh. Yeah, and, that's, and, 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 and there are different sensibilities and how the World War II scarred a lot of the populace. And you, you just see weird weirdnesses that you go, ah, you know, there's not, ever, not, not every place on the earth is just like us. Even something that's more or less in from a first world standpoint should be rough, you know, roughly the same standard of living. There's still lots of differences. I think it's fascinating to, to be able to experience that sort of stuff. Well, let's do a little thought experiment. You guys, I'm going to ask you a question and, and you tell me how you would play this. In broad strokes, the reason that I have enjoyed traveling and teaching writers all over the world is that I was never independently successful as a stand-up, sorry, as a sitcom writer in Hollywood. That is to say, I never had enough success in Hollywood that I could sustain my career to the point of being on staff on successively higher shows, making my own shows, making the big bucks in Hollywood. Instead, I traveled and taught all over the world and accrued all this experience. So knowing that your choices are mega bucks and mega impact success in Hollywood versus mega experience traveling all over the world, which would you choose? I'm an experience junkie. I I love that. Yeah. Part of me loves the experience part of it, but there's also a part of me that I don't care so much about the money or what have you, but being able to master your craft, Mm -hmm. that idea really appeals to me. I, like I said, I don't care about Hollywood or, or any of that sort of stuff, but the idea of being very good appeals to me, but experiences I I love too. I mean, so, I mean, it's not like, it's not like a win lose sort of situation. Right. It's more exactly, it's more exactly like a cost benefit situation. And this is the point of the thought exercise. No matter how glorious your future is, there will be cost. No matter how right Right. your choices are, there will be unexpected, possibly negative consequences. The way that I understood it early on, like it's 20, 21 years old. And I realized that, that I could experience fully or I could communicate fully, but I could never do both fully at the same time. It just didn't work that way. So for me, it's been a lifelong, not struggle, but um, engagement, balancing experience with, with um, communication. The part that you're speaking to, Norbert, mastery of craft I don't think that I was intended to master that craft. I don't actually think I was good enough to be the guy that I fantasized being. And this goes back to the question of mastery as we discussed it earlier. What did I find? I found my way to teaching where I 
definitely have mastery that I can own. So part of what makes a life work is recognizing where are the lines of least resistance? Where do you exist in places where your passion for doing something, the joy you get out of doing it, is perfectly in line with your purpose, the reason that you're doing it? When I'm writing and teaching and helping other people write and teach, then I'm in perfect alignment of passion and purpose in a way that I never was when I was operating in a sitcom world. The regret that I experienced looking back on those sitcom years, when I say to myself, why didn't I just work harder? Why didn't I stay with it longer? Why didn't I get that pilot? Why didn't I get that, you know, that uh, co-executive producer position? Why didn't I move up the ladder? Well, part of it was I don't move up ladders. I don't work in corporate environments. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't recognize it. And it cost me a lot of years of heartache and regret thinking about what I missed out by that specific road not taken. And I spent a lot of time passing through exactly what we talked about earlier, this sense of well, I was there, I participated, I made my health insurance, I sold a lot of stuff, but I never really mastered the craft. I never really influenced people the way I thought I would when I started that part of the journey. What I know now that I didn't know then was that I've started many different journeys and some of them have borne fabulous fruit. I started writing poker books and sold a crap ton of poker books. I started writing novels and had much more modest success. I started teaching and training writers in other places and that carried me through my life. I started writing sitcom and did something that left me with a hole in my heart, if I'm being completely honest. But now I recognize starting and continuing and then stopping for one reason or another, that's the way I'm wired. So if I've picked up stand-up comedy and set it down again, well, I picked it up exactly long enough to write a book about it, and then I'll set it down again. I picked up art with the same intention. I'm going to stay with it long enough to write a book again, and then I'm going to set it down. But that one's with me. That one's going to be with me for my life. I think. I don't know. My motto now is finish hard. All I want out of the rest of my life is to keep doing creative stuff as long as I can, as hard as I can, until they take the tools from my hands. Yeah. That's this perfect. I, I think I think that's a perfect uh, bit of wisdom to for people to to ponder. I saw um, Gene Simmons on a show one time, and he said, "I sort of look at life. I'm a 70 years old at the time of of the interview, and he goes, you know, I can see the end. It's not that far off, but it's like a race. He goes, I'm going to run as hard as I can, all the way to the finish line. And I thought, that's what I want to do." I want to finish hard. You know what I mean? I, th mm -hmm. and I, that dovetails exactly with what you just said and how you look at and reflect about your experiences and your, how life, uh, you, you moved in, 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 in precisely the way that you, you should have. I mean, it feels like to me. So now you know what you already knew, which is that there are people out there in the world who share your thoughts, who view things the same way that you do, hold the same values and aspirations. And then that's a candle in the dark. That, that helps us when they're sending us rejections, you know, when we're not selling, huh, I'm going to, I'm going to go and do my first in-person art show. And I just know it's going to be horrible. <laughs> I'm going to be standing there. I know myself, I'm going to be freaking out in 10 minutes saying, why did I put myself through this? Finish hard, right? Finish Absolutely hard. Absolutely. I did the experience bank. Listen, um, yeah. if I could just say before we wrap up, one thing I haven't uh, really mentioned to people who are listening Um I'm not kidding about this service that I'm in. And if there's something on your mind that you think I can help you with uh, as a coach or a consultant, I can do a lot of good work in this world, but I can't do it if, if I don't know about it. So when I say to you, go to my website and reach out to me through the contact link that's there or figure out my email, john.vorehouse at gmail.com. Oh, you cracked the code. 
feel free to be in touch with me. My experience of communicating with other people who are on the path that I'm on is very important to me. I try to keep that door as open as possible. That's all I wanted to say. That's perfect. No, that sounds great. Yeah, and I was definitely going to mention your site. It's it's awesome. It's got a lot of good information there. By the way, too, johnvorehouse.com. Uh, I also wanted to mention, uh, I really like your your site on Amazon. I mean, your books, you've got all your books there. Or well, all I could see a ton of books there. And then I, they were very easy to get the information about them. I just thought it was amazing. Well, thank you. I, I, I tended that site. I decided if people can't find their way to Amazon, they can't find their way to anything. <laughs> so I'll right. just focus on Amazon. That's right. Sorry, I cut yeah. you off, Patrick. Yeah. No, you're no, fine. No. John, it's been a pleasure. If, if um, they can't get to Amazon, they're not getting your website. No. Yeah, that's true. True. But if they get to my website, then they can get PDF downloads for like $5. And that's, you know, that's that's throwaway money. I'd like to keep my prices low for the folks, the peeps. Um, well, I've got, we're going to have to talk again because I've I've got a bunch of questions I didn't even ask you. And, uh, and I'm dying. Well, I'm not dying, but I, I got some, you know, I'd really like to know some of these answers, but. But it's been a pleasure tonight, John. I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a blast talking to you. And, I, man, you had some really good insights for us. I think anybody that is uh, creative needs to hear some, here's your message because, you know, I a lot of the people that we, we talk to have their paths don't start where they finished, you know, and, and the success is not like, okay, I did this and I was a success and that's what I did the rest of my life. You know, everybody has their ups and downs and those ups and downs make them the artist they are, the author that they are, or the actor or actress they are. You're not going to get any pushback from me. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> All right. Um, I will be back. I'm going to circle back when the little book of stand up is ready, if that's okay with you. I love and then it. We can talk, talk about that. That's going to be a great book. Yeah, yeah we could, we could, uh, we could uh, have a full conversation on, on that, on that subject alone. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I already own a bunch of books now, so, you know, <laughs> well, good. Keep that up. <laughs> All right. Hey, John, uh, don't people don't forget John and John, it's been a pleasure and you have a great evening. You too. Go local sports team. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Have a good one. <laughs> Thank right. you. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. Hey, hey. You're too late.